Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. Today, we are talking with Everest climber, guide, and mountaineer Melissa Arnott-Reed. She is the first American woman ever to summit Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen, something only seven women in the entire universe have ever done. If you're thinking that sounds kind of like a crazy thing to do, Uh (laughs) National Geographic says that climbing Everest without supplemental oxygen is, quote, the same as suffocating at sea level by putting a plastic bag over your head that allows you just enough air to survive. So yeah, this is kind of a crazy thing to do. Melissa holds the record for the most Everest climbs of any American woman. She's reached the summit six times out of nine attempts. Her climbs are extremely high risk, and her training schedule definitely puts my yoga obsession to shame. But we've got her today in a studio at normal altitude to talk about all things climbing. We're also going to talk to Melissa about what she nerds out about in her free time, which is true crime stories. Because when I think about long periods of time alone in nature, climbing through woods and mountains, (laughs) it's comforting to also be thinking about murder. (laughs) Melissa, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, Trisha. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. I am fascinated by what you do because I find it absolutely terrifying. <laughs> As someone who does not love heights of any sort, I'm just amazed that you do what you do. Well, I will not make you go anywhere where your fear of heights will be exposed right now. I'll promise you that. How about? That's good. I'm going to stay here in the studio, but I want to <laughs> hear about how you realized that you had this adventurous spirit. You were 13 and asked to go camping on your own and your dad said yes. How did that happen? How did you end up in the woods by yourself as a teenager? So I always was really curious as a child, and I love to sort of push boundaries. And that showed up in a lot of different ways. But when I became a teenager, I became so fascinated with if I could survive by myself without the help of anybody else. And we had moved to Montana from Colorado, and the Bob Marshall Wilderness is right outside of Glacier National Park. And it's really, really wilderness, wild, and scary place, actually. There's quite a lot of grizzly bears, and it's so remote, not a lot of roads. And I asked my dad if I could go camping alone there. And he said no, of course, as he would. He thought I was going to go to a keg or something, I think. But um, (laughs) he said no. And then he said, if you gain the skills to prove that you can keep yourself alive, I'll let you go. So I spent time reading books and trying to like learn everything I could about survival. And then I launched out and he let me go. And it was a three-day adventure, which felt like three years of my life. And When he actually picked me up, he was so emotional and he said that he didn't sleep the entire time and he just kept thinking that like he was going to be arrested for having sent his daughter out into the Bob Marshall wilderness by herself. Eaten by grizzly bears. Yeah, be eaten by grizzly bears. Get lost. I mean, I honestly, I didn't even go on a trail. We tied a piece of uh, flagging tape to a tree where he dropped me off and said, be back here in three days. And so I was up to me to navigate. And this is pre-technology of like, I'll just take my smartphone and lay down a track and then follow that track back. 
I just started walking into the woods. Wow. And I honestly, I set my tent up and then I went to find water and I lost my tent. And it took me like two hours to find my tent again. And then all night I just heard noises. And it was the beginning of what would become a really adventurous life that has been driven by wanting to be really independent as well. So when did you start climbing? Yeah, so I didn't start climbing actually until I was 19 because I went from that time of being 13 and wanting to be in the wilderness all the way to sort of just being a typical teenage high school girl caring about my hair and boys and things that had nothing to do with adventure outdoors. And then I started climbing when I was 19. A friend took me out and it wasn't something I had thought much about. It wasn't something I knew was an activity. And I'd always been really athletic, but never competitive. And for me, climbing was exactly that. It was something that you could push yourself physically. You could be in nature. You could be really independent. But you also, you weren't like in a race with somebody. You weren't, it wasn't a competitive vibe. And so I really knew right away that it was something I loved, something I wanted to pursue, and something that I also could see doing for a really long time because my friend we went hiking a couple of times that summer with his parents and his parents at that time seemed like you know oh they're so old Um, but they were really quite young but in their 50s and they were just doing the same thing we were and I saw that there was such longevity to this activity and that really really appealed to me. At what point are you realizing that you're good at it in a way that maybe this is a career Because like you said, you weren't even sure that it was an activity and then it becomes a career. Yeah, I think I'm still figuring that out, honestly. (laughs) I mean, I say, you know, half in jest that the thing I'm good at is walking uphill slowly, which is like not a very marketable attribute. But um, (laughs) it's something that I have made into a career. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's so important when you think about finding your path and what your path is, is that you just sort of fuel the fire that speaks most to you. And so I didn't know that it could be a career. I didn't know that teaching other people the things I'd learned in the mountains and getting to travel the world and explore new mountains all the time was something that could even be a sustainable career. So that was actually a surprise to me. And um, I, it started pretty quickly, though. Within a couple years after that first climb that I went on, I was working as a professional mountain guide on Mount Rainier. And um, I was starting to learn all the skills that would eventually take me to Everest. And at what point did you realize that you were explaining to people who asked you what you did at a dinner party, like, no, this is actually, this is my job. This isn't just a hobby. How do you decide to make that transition and and make it your identity as a job? Two things about that. One is that I struggle with that dinner party conversation so much to this day. When people ask me, or on a plane, you know, I travel a lot in the air, and people say, oh, yeah, what do you do for work? And I usually say that I work at Starbucks. And, um, <laughs> you know, nobody ever asks more questions about that. Sometimes they'll be like, oh, I love Starbucks. And I'll be like, yeah, it's great. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I think is really hard to explain to people. And For me, it became a career, I guess, when it was what I was doing primarily to support myself financially. So it takes some explaining. And I used to really shy away from just going directly at what it is that I do. And I used to sort of talk around it and I would say, oh, I'm a mountain guide. And that people would go, oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? And then it would take a lot of explanation. And so I found myself, as I've gotten more experience, just being really direct with people when they ask and saying, I work as a professional high altitude climbing guide, climbing on peaks like Everest. And then they usually say, you know, have you climbed Everest? And I can get there rather quickly to help them understand that, you know, my job is facilitating other people's safety and I get to do what I love while doing that. But it's really hard. It doesn't fit into a box. And so it's just a hard thing to explain to people. 
So how do you then completely explain the difference between climbing and being a guide? Is one just that you're there for someone else's climb and sometimes you're there for your own? Or is it always sort of for you and for the work? Yeah, I think that when I am guiding, I am there 100% for my client's experience. And I always explain it that way. You know, I like to be sort of a liaison between the mountain and the people who maybe don't have as much experience or skills or knowledge about how to stay safe and travel. When I'm climbing on my own, just personally pursuing my own adventures, it feels different to me. My risk tolerance is different. The way that I approach which objectives I'm going to try to climb is different. When I'm working with clients, I am really just there to facilitate their goals. And that's, I think, an honor and a gift, really, because you get let into a very vulnerable place for people. You know, you mentioned that you're afraid of heights. I have so many clients that are afraid of heights or afraid of being in remote places or afraid of tackling something big like a technical mountain summit. And letting their fears be exposed to somebody is a big deal. And I, I really take it very seriously. So what does a day of training look like? Yeah, training is a huge part of what I do because I'm actually, athletically speaking, pretty average. And so I have to train really hard to be able to be prepared to have these long days in the mountains. So for me, it usually involves getting up really early. I like to do a lot of uphill hiking with a weighted pack. So I usually, I have a 50-pound weight vest that I put inside my pack and I'll hike up about 3,000 feet up and then down with that weight as well. And then if I'm really in training mode, that's just the first phase of my day. I'll go to the gym and I do a variety of different kind of sprinting workouts and interval training, some basic lifting just to keep my body strong and in balance. And then I also usually train for a really long road run or trail run like a marathon or longer that I'll do right before I launch on an expedition. And that is physical training for endurance for sure, but it's also mental training for me because I really dislike running. And so if I can do something that I really dislike, and I mean for a long time too, like multiple hours of running, it's not rewarding at all, but it's something that I feel like mentally makes me a lot stronger when I'm in the mountains and things are hard. I can remember like, oh, okay, if I could run a marathon and I hate running this much, like I could probably just keep walking uphill in this beautiful place. That also sounds like you probably get to eat maybe not like a Michael Phelps Olympic <laughs> diet, but I imagine that you also have to carbo load. Yeah, I always um, think somewhere deep in my psychology, I probably just climb and train so that I can eat donuts recklessly instead of <laughs> instead of actually for the joy of climbing. But don't tell anybody that. <laughs> I know many people who run so they can eat ice cream. I think it's yeah. fair. I think it's I fair. I mean, honestly, it's a good time. <laughs> I'm hoping you can put into words for us something that so few of us have experienced. And even if we've seen pictures, I wonder what it sounds like and what it smells like and tastes like to be at the peak of Everest. What is that like? Oh, I mean, in one word, it's humbling, you know, because as a human, there's so few things that we can do where we experience sort of the pinnacle experience of humans interacting with nature. And to be on the highest point on earth, it's a really, really special area. It has a sort of life to it, I think. It feels alive. It it feels like a personality. You know, it has its own way that you have to communicate with the mountain. And when you are on the summit, it's two things. I mean, I say humbling because it's so, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to actually even think of what the words are because it's such a deep emotion. It's almost something that we don't have a word for because it's that exceptional. But it's also scary because it's the halfway point, right? You know, you don't really celebrate on the summit because you're so deep in the adventure. You are halfway there to returning safely. And I think returning safely is 
the most important thing, honestly. It's just what makes the whole adventure worth even pursuing. So it's amazing. I've seen some of the most incredible things. You climb above big monsoonal thunderstorms that are moving in in the middle of the night, and there's massive lightning storms going on below you. Wow. I've seen a satellite fly over my head that was, you know, only 20,000 feet above me and the size of the moon. Uh, I mean, you can't even imagine that that would ever happen. And uh, it's special. It's a really special experience. That sounds like an experience that so few people have had, but feels cinematic in a way that only would exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? It feels like Mm -hmm. to be above a lightning storm is a superpower of some kind. Yeah, I'd like to think it's a superpower of some kind, but it's also like incredibly not that pleasant. (laughs) You know, for all of the magicalness of like seeing these big lightning storms below you, you have snot frozen to your face and your breath that you're exhaling is freezing and freezing your zipper shut and you haven't eaten anything for 12 hours and, you know, it's just not glamorous by any means. (laughs) But I think that's part of what makes it so magic is you're reduced into just surviving with nature and that sort of gift that like nature's letting you survive it becomes really in the forefront of your mind after the break melissa talks about what it was like to climb everest without supplemental oxygen a feat she accomplished after no less than eight years of training fewer thank you davos you're listening to nerdette Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So, Melissa, you've reached the peak of Mount Everest six times. One of those times you did it without any supplemental oxygen, which I thought sounded crazy, and National Geographic confirms... That, quote, climbing to these altitudes without oxygen is the same as suffocating at sea level by putting a plastic bag over your head that allows just enough air to survive. (laughs) Why would you do that? Yeah, that's such a good question. When you summit Everest with the use of supplemental oxygen, a few things happen. One is that you stay a lot warmer, you're a lot more cerebrally aware of what's going on around you, and the experience is just different. You know, when we have oxygen, we're happier, we're not as agitated. And so to take away the assistance that that gives you and to actually survive without any aid at the highest point on earth, feels like the most respectful thing you can do to that place and to nature, to say, nature, this is what you are, and I'm here in front of you as you are, and I'm willing to sort of experience that experience as it is. That being said, it is so hard, and I also think that there are a lot more fun ways to feel that bad, I think, (laughs) but it's hard. I mean, it's just absolutely depleting to be without the use of supplemental oxygen, and it's funny because I wouldn't describe it as suffocating. Because it's so gradual, you know, the the Everest expedition takes around 60 days to complete from start to finish. And you have to 
go really slow to allow your body to adjust to the new altitudes. And the actual summit push is only a few days long. But in that time, you're sort of incrementally feeling the changes in lack of oxygen. And so it's not sudden, like put a bag over your head and try to breathe out this hole. It's more just like really agitating. Everything takes so much longer. You know, even though the air is thinner, actually, it almost feels like it's thicker. Like just walking from point A to point B feels like you have to trudge through the air to get there, you know? And so that's, I think, how it feels more so than like that suffocating feeling. And so you do this once and you have this experience and then you keep doing it a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. What makes you keep wanting to go back? Well, for me, the first time I went to Everest, I was working as an assistant guide with a client, and that was an amazing experience. And when I summited, I had the question of, could I do this without oxygen? And so I started an eight-year pursuit of an answer to that question. And I only achieved that in 2016, just last year. And it took me all of those previous five summits and three other attempts of failure to actually get to the point where I could do it. And so I don't think I have some sort of gluttonous mentality that I'm like, I just am going to go back forever. I love being a guide on Everest. I love sharing the knowledge that I've gained in that place with clients and helping keep them safe. And I also was pursuing this goal and I achieved it now. And I can tell you with 100% certainty, I will never try to climb Everest without oxygen again. That is just of zero interest to me. It was so hard and I'm so grateful that I was able to do it. And I don't have anything left in that conversation with the mountain that way. I'm still open to guiding there if that was the right scenario for me. But, you know, my personal goals on Everest are very complete. You mentioned that there were the six times you did it and then the few where you called them failed attempts. What does that failure mean? I think it's hard to say like failure exactly because it's just not summiting. And I think that that's not all encompassing of failure. I think sometimes you can summit and consider it a failure if you didn't learn something from that experience. But, um, you know, I tried to climb one year and we ended up turning around. It just wasn't, things weren't going right. The conditions were really challenging and it just didn't feel right. And so my partner and I turned around very, very high on the mountain at like around 26,000 feet. And um, that felt hard. That felt hard to turn back from. The other two times, didn't feel hard at all because they were wrapped up in these other sort of just catastrophic events that went on. In 2014, there was an avalanche that killed 16 local workers and all the climbing shut down totally appropriately. It was a major, major event and and tragic. You know, I lost friends in that accident. It was really hard to even imagine climbing at that point. And then the next year was the earthquake in Nepal. You know, 10,000 people in the country died and a lot of people at base camp were injured in a big avalanche. And so everything stopped in that country, not just climbing, obviously. So it's hard to say that those are failed attempts, so to speak. But there were years when I was there climbing and plans changed for other reasons. Right. But I think that's the nice part, I guess, about Everest in, in some ways is that nature controls your schedule. And I love that consciousness that you get from being forced to sort of say, okay, nature, like this is up to you. And it happens in big ways sometimes. And it happens in smaller ways sometimes where like the weather's not good or you're not feeling healthy enough or you're not acclimatizing. And I think that that is one of the parts of climbing that is the most uh, rewarding internally is that you just learn how to not, I'm such a control freak, like as a mountain (laughs) guide, it's a good thing, but just in general life, not so good. And so it's nice to just be able to have no control and to be really, really forced to confront that regularly. So are your family and friends also climbers? Are they thrill seekers? 
Yeah, you know, so two things. One, my husband is a climbing guide as well and, and a ski guide. And so we enjoy the mountains together. But I also don't really feel like what we do is thrill seeking. I think of it much more as like a slow, meditative thing. And if you've ever watched mountain climbing on a film, you know what I mean. It's so boring. It's like so slow and there's no adrenaline. Like there's no like Red Bull sponsored like high altitude <laughs> mountain climbers because it's super boring. But it is something where, you know, we are exposing ourselves to our limits, but in a much more slow, methodical way. It's so funny to think that there are points of it where you are kind of bored. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I talk with um, clients who are interested in doing really big high altitude climbs, I always tell them, you know, one of the most important attributes you need is to be able to chill hard because there's so much time where you just are like lounging around, resting, letting your body adjust to the altitude or walking really slowly through a zone you've already climbed through like two or three other times and you're totally familiar with it. And, you know, it's not this awe-inspiring moment. And it's actually super ridiculous when you think about what I do. It's like climbing Everest, you climb for, you know, 30 days again and again in the same areas again and again, every day seeing the same thing. To have literally like maximum one hour on the pinnacle of this mountain and then to just go down. (laughs) And it's something that it's just all the toil and all the training and everything that goes into it is for this really minimal moment. So you have to like find a weird part of your psychology to be able to stay motivated in that environment, I think. And I also have to wonder if these experiences you've had and the way you've broken ceilings means that you're maybe thinking that you should sell your life rights to a movie or somebody's already come knocking? Because I would probably watch a movie of you doing these things. We would do the supercut over the monotonous parts you're describing yeah, yeah. Right? for Hollywood. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's a really incredible thing. Is that something that at some point in achieving things in this world where you're like, oh, you know what? I might end up being a mentor and a role model and What did that mean to you to realize that other people were going to be interested in your story? Yeah. You know what I think is really cool is that it was an accident. It wasn't an intention. I didn't set out on this path thinking that I would eventually inspire other people on their respective paths. And it's become something that is a really important part of my life. I mentor a couple of young girls who are interested in mountaineering. And I just actually say that I mentor them in mountaineering. But really what I'm trying to mentor them in is life and leadership and confidence and these skills that are mandatory for being in the big mountains. And I'm sort of sharing my life story and experience with them. And and I love that. And it's a really fun part of doing something that's outside of the mainstream is that you're willing to sort of bring that experience to other people who are interested. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Melissa is a mountain climbing nerd. I mean, she's devoting a bunch of her time and energy to this thing. And maybe some people listening are thinking of trying it for themselves now too, frozen snot and all. But in just a minute, we're going to talk about something else that Melissa is obsessed with, which will involve calling up a true crime podcast host who is a real life retired FBI profiler and supervisory special agent. Trisha, is this our first special agent? I think so. We should have more special agents. (laughs) This is our first of many, I hope. I had a feeling that you would be just about as excited as this as you are about astronauts. (laughs) She's nodding, folks. She's nodding.
Okay, Melissa, in addition to your obsession with mountain climbing, you have another maybe lesser known obsession, and that's that you love true crime stories, right? I do. And it's everything true crime. Like if I couldn't be a climbing guide, I wanted to be an investigator of some sort. So it's like that deep knowledge side of things. Well, I also hear that you like the podcast Real Crime Profile. I love it. (laughs) We have the host of that show, Jim Clementi, on the line. Jim, hello. How you doing? Jim is a retired FBI supervisory special agent and profiler and a former prosecutor from New York City. He has worked on cases that involve bank robberies and serial killers, public corruption, all sorts of things that are very interesting. He now hosts three true crime podcasts, Real Crime Profile and Best Case, Worst Case, and the newly released Locked Up Abroad. Jim, I'm going to let Melissa take it from here because she, I think, will have some questions about true crime and all the things that you know so much about. Great. What do you want to know, Melissa? Well, I want to know so many things, but I'm curious for you and your perspective, what is so interesting about profiling these different unsolved or open cases that there's not a a finite conclusion to? And so I'm curious what drives your interest in that whole process? Well, I always thought when uh, when I went through the FBI Academy, the profiling unit did a presentation in one of our behavioral science courses. And I went up to the uh, profiler afterwards and said, look, I, I want to do what you do. And he said, all right, kid, come back in 10 years, get some experience. <laughs> and I did. Actually, nine years, eight months later, I was in the unit. And what's amazing about this unit is that we go after some of the greatest minds on the bad side, people who use their brains to hurt people and take advantage and so forth. And I thought, what an amazing way to use your brain to sort of counteract that. So it's a challenge mentally, but also it's a challenge in every other way, physically and emotionally. And and it just stresses you out to the max, but you realize what you're made of. Um, And I think that's the way you always get better. You talked about humans learning from humans. Well, I learn from humans. Usually it's bad human behavior. I'm sure you challenge yourself when you're you're climbing a mountain, right? Yeah, for sure. But I also I think that's what I love about crime in general. And that whole uh, side of things is that it's something that you're so rarely exposed to is the sort of psychology behind what's really bad and those extremes. And sure. I think that that's what's so fascinating to me is to like, dive deeper into people's psychology and be exposed to things that you just don't get exposed to on a daily basis. Right. And can I tell you my behavioral theory on that? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I believe particularly with women, and they are the biggest consumers of true crime. um, I think just like rubbernecking is a phenomenon where you drive past an accident, you can't look away. You, You have to look at it. Something in your primitive brain is telling you, learn what happened so you can avoid this. And I think with true crime, women in particular want to learn what happened so that they can protect the people they love. Yeah, I worked with a producer of sort of investigation discovery work, and he was a client of mine, and he said the exact same thing. But I also feel like one of the things I'm always so curious about is that it seems so obvious, right? Like it seems Mm -hmm. we have all the data here. How can this still not be solved? Or how can it not be complete? Well, most of the time people, uh, cops bring us their cases when there is no forensic evidence. And so we rely on behavioral evidence, which is something that's a little more amorphous. It's one step removed. And we look at the behavior and we reverse engineer back to the type of person who committed the crime. And just the choice of victim. Victimology is incredibly important because uh, an offender picks a particular victim at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular manner, for a particular purpose. And all those choices basically reflect back on them and who they are and what their desires are, what their skills and abilities are. So we use all these details that most cops 
wouldn't even bother looking at. To us, that's what's instructive. And you mentioned something before about it. This true crime, most of that stuff is beyond the realm of experience for the average person. And that's absolutely true. And that's why we started Best Case, Worst Case, because what we do is we interview cops about the best case of their career and the worst case of the career to show the spectrum of behavior that they've had to put up with over the course of their career and how it affected them as cops. Because the average person, like you said, is kept on the other side of that police line. They don't get to cross it and come in and look at all that horrible human behavior and all the results of, you know, incredibly bad people doing bad things to other humans. Yeah, I work periodically as an EMS professional in ambulance. And I think it's a very similar way of like, it seems like a secret what goes on in that box. But once you're actually in it, you realize it's just so human. And it's just so normal is not the right word, but it's just so regular. And I wonder if you have that experience also in investigating things like there's so much stuff that you really have to know what it is you're looking for and get inside of the systems that you rely on so that you, because it is, it, it is just more normal than you expect. I think, yeah. So well, it actually becomes normal and, and you develop, I'm sure you did too, as an EMT, a clinical detachment. Um, mm-hmm. You can't get emotional about it. You have to live it in the moment. You have to let your subconscious take in as many details as possible. And it does a tremendous amount of work for you. Literally, your subconscious thinks in trillions of a second, where we consciously think in hundreds of a second. So 10 billion times faster when your conscious does all that math work. So what we learn is to become passive sort of sponges for all this behavior, all these details. And then we allow our what we call an educated gut instinct to tell us what's important, what isn't important, where we go, where we don't go, and pull on the strands that we find, uh, you know, the leads of the investigation. But sometimes you can't put your finger on it right then and there why you know this is what you have to do. But later... You can find out, you know, that your your brain has done that work for you and you just need to rely on it. So I think what's so fascinating about the stories that you are sharing and telling right now is that cases that you're visiting have been open and data has been being collected for so long, you know, 20, 30 more years old. And you have all of this history and it's still unfolding. And I just think that must be a really fascinating thing to go through and have so much time and technologies have changed so much. And I wonder if that's really a big part of what's fascinating for you about it now. Absolutely. That's the greatest thing. I mean, some people look at cold cases as this, you know, unsurmountable mountain, right? And to me, it's the exact opposite because technology has increased the amount of forensic work we can do, and behavioral analysis has increased the amount of interpretation we can do. Sometimes uh, it's unfortunate at the time they don't do things that would have preserved certain pieces of evidence, but the behavior just lasts forever. I mean, if somebody documented it and we know about it, and we can go back and still interview people if they're still alive around it, And we've done a number of those investigations where time has actually helped because people weren't afraid now after five or 10 or 20 years to talk about what happened. But in the moment, they were frightened by it. So they didn't come forward. So we get witnesses who never spoke before. We have technology that was never available before. And we have a new understanding of behavior. And I think the three of those things make solving cold cases actually a reality now that in a way that it wasn't in the past. That's exciting. Melissa Arnott-Reed and Jim Clementi, thanks so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa, too. Yeah, thanks for entertaining me. (laughs) Jim Clementi hosts three podcasts about true crime that you should check out. Best Case, Worst Case, Locked Up Abroad, and Real Crime Profile. 
If you're wondering, how do I make sure that while I'm doing all this guilty pleasure listening about true crime, <laughs> I'm also improving my body and not just my mind, do it the way Melissa would, walking slowly up a hill. Oh, very nice. Greta, you got any criminal homework? You know, actually, I do. I think y'all should go watch Ozark. It's a series on Netflix. It's fake crime. It's fictional. But it stars Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, which is a pretty excellent combo. And it's fun to try and think about where this uh, fits in with the timeline of Arrested Development. It's possible (laughs) (laughs) that Marty Bird is still Michael Bluth, just in disguise. Mr. F. (laughs) The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Candice Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. Our intern is B. Aldrich. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. It's also very helpful. It helps spread the good word about Nerdette, so to speak, if you leave us some stars in Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Mara Bilf Beef Bilf 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 Mari Bilf. Wait, wait, wait! It's Mari B Elf. I think it's Mari who is an elf. Oh, you know, it's pretty cool. Backwards, it's Fleabaram. You can decide whether Fleabaram or Mariba the Elf (laughs) is your favorite version of this after you've given us five stars and tell us on Twitter at Nerdette Podcast, Instagram, Facebook, all those places. You can find us online. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Slowly up a hill, thinking of murder. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.